Hello and welcome to Open Door Films. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Fountain, a podcasting app that allows you to earn Bitcoin while you listen to your favorite podcasters. It's no joke. In addition to being able to stream Bitcoin to your favorite podcasters, you can actually earn it while you listen to them, which is a great productivity hack because, let's face it, I don't know anybody that really sits down and listens to a podcast without doing anything, so it's essential to use it while you're doing some productive, uh, productive things. Sorry, tongue twist there, but... Anyway, you might as well be making money off your time, especially when it's towards people you already respect for their creativity. And speaking of creativity, when it comes to podcasting, I believe everybody has a creative voice they want to share, but it's very difficult because of the many platforms out there, and you probably think you have to post an episode for each one individually, and that could be daunting. Well, the second sponsor of this podcast, Anchor, changes all that because of Anchor, you can just simply record yourself once, well, not once, you're probably going to do multiple takes, but either way, once you, pu- once you record yourself, you publish an episode, it's going to be distributed across Anchor, no, no, Anchor will distribute it across all the other platforms out there. That's right, Apple, Spotify, Lisbon, CurioCaster, Podfreeze, Fountain, the whole shebang, which is a word I never grow tired of, despite the tongue twists I've had so far in this intro. Anyway, I really want to talk about my guest, David Fortune who is a a filmmaker and just a a humble film fan that I really enjoy my conversations with. He's directed directed several shorts, and he even directed a short that is on Netflix called Us. I actually had asked him if he borrowed it from Jordan Peele's film Us, but it's a totally different subject matter because the subject of the short is is more baseball-centered, about a father teaching a, a child with a disability how to play baseball, and... I found the concept really interesting. You should check it out on Netflix when you get a chance Any, for anyone who's listening. I mean, I don't know. Maybe I'm, nobody's listening. I'm really just taking a shot in the dark here. Uh, but in addition to that, me and David talked about multiple things in our discussion. Film, Batman, which I've always mentioned in my podcast episodes to some extent, but we really went in depth here. And I even recommended to him a collection of Batman shorts called The Gotham Knight, which I think for all of you, the Batman fans out uh, Sorry, another tongue twist. For all the Batman fans out there, you can actually check it out on YouTube. All six episodes are there. Me and David talked about my... He actually went out of his way to ask me what's my my favorite of the episodes, and he hadn't seen the... And from my understanding, he hadn't seen the film. But he still went out of his way to ask me about it because it, it showed me intellect, an intellectual curiosity that I feel is important when it comes to storytelling and just lovers of cinema overall because you got to have that intellectual bigger in order to just to just to be, survive in this industry or just get a get an good god my tongue twist well basically just to get a frill for it i'm in a stuttering mood today aren't i anyway we also talked about sports films the cult the current cultural climate we're living in we talked about the 70s and how was that was the high point of cinema and how the 80s was more of the morally upbeat and kind of corny segment of cinema Again, we, talk, we talked about a lot of things, which is what I really enjoy about these podcast episodes, and I hope uh, for anybody who's listening, you get that sensation as well. I mean, I've mentioned how much Joe Rogan has been an influence on my podcast, but not because I'm trying to copy him, but because I love that he can just talk about shit with his guests, and it can just go anywhere. And that's what I hope to continue to do with the podcast episodes of this, uh, in the future. Anyway, enough of my babbling. Check out the sponsors links I've left down below, as well as the Bitcoin buying links for all of the all all of the good God, my stuttering. For those of you who want Bitcoin and hard money that can help you survive inflation, just check out the links and you'll get a nice referral reward.
So in a way, we both win. We both get rewarded for clicking the same link. Anyway, I hope you all enjoyed this episode of Open Door Films. Till next time. Okay, old David, thanks again for coming on the podcast today. And uh, I was I was very much drawn to a lot of some of the work you've done, particularly for Netflix. Well, so why don't we just start there? Because the idea, right. even the title of your work on Netflix, Us, reminds me of Jordan of Jordan Peele's work. And <laughs> I'm curious if you've been influenced by his work in some sense. For sure, for sure. Um, so even with Us, Us is about a father who teaches his son with Down syndrome life lessons through the sweet science of baseball. And um, when going into the title, I thought about, you know, what is the relationship dynamic between this father and the son? And, you know, I had different titles. I had the number two, I had we, I had, you know, uh, a title called champions, all these different things. But, you know, as I was talking to my sister about it, who's in her kitchen, um, and I was like, yo, this is something that we do. This is something, this game of baseball that they share is, is for us. It's our thing. It's us. And I was like, well, that's it. It's us. And of course, like any filmmaker, they'll start thinking about the title and they kind of get thrown off. It's like, oh, well, Jordan Peele already took that title. Um, oh, you know, that didn't come off as a cliche on my end. <laughs> Because I was going to, I also wanted to talk about why specifically baseball. Mm. No, for sure. Like, you know, we could, yeah, like I could uh, get to that right afterward. Um, Sure. Yeah. And so just like, just even with the title, I just didn't feel like, you know, I was like, all right, it spoke to the truth of this relationship. And if Jordan Peele has the name, then you know what? That's, you know that's fine. You know, my film isn't competing with his. If anything, it would just honor it. Um, I guess it just made me think of it because when you think about that title for his film and your film, it's very simple, very down to earth at the same time. Mm. Subject matters because I'm guessing your film has a much more optimistic look than us does. Mm-hmm. And his sure. Art. sure. You know, because even with Jordan Peele's uh, film, Us, it's like, there's a more cynical ending type feeling to his film, where with my film is more of an idea of a sense of hope, right? Granted, in my film, it's, it's not too much of a happy ending. Um, not to say I'm against happy endings, but for me, I wanted to still work in this space of realism where, you know, this kid, he doesn't get it, right? But he, at least he's trying. Right. And I think that's reflected of the community that he's a part of when it comes to the disability community is that it's a working progress It's not finalized at that moment. And I think that is something that reflective, not in just that community's life, but even our own, honestly. There's a very underdog feel to it, if you ask by the way you're describing it. And uh, yeah, that's not that's a quality within a character. People will never get tired of the underdog in some sense. Yeah, for sure. And and I come from an underdog community. Um, I grew up in Decatur, Georgia, about 15, 20 minutes outside of Atlanta, Georgia. Um, You know, underprivileged community. So for me, I like to make stories based from that level. Um, All my stories that I say I make is set in more so inner city environments. 
Because from that moment, from that space, you then have to climb up. There's something to achieve higher. Um, so for me, it's just as a story, you know, I look at myself as an underdog in a way, honestly. Do you feel that? No, no, I think it's important for the environment to tell the story in a sense, because it influences the actions of the character. Mm -hmm. And I always I mean one era of cinema. I always, I always look to know where that stands out the most. So I'm really calling attention is the seventies because mm. when you look at some of the best films, they came from the seventies. And what do all mm. those films share? This heightened awareness of dis, not just despair, but paranoia that is just mm. in the environment. They don't call attention to it. It's just in the air. Mm -hmm. True. True. And that's something I try to use even with us is that when they're walking through their neighborhood, um, I'm not trying to just show you, you know, different parts of their communities. It's like, yo, they're just walking through their neighborhood like me and my sister used to walk through ours, right? You feel it, you you feel it without really seeing it so much, right? Because the focus is on the characters, but what's around them is the community. Um, but I just try to normalize it like, hey, it's an everyday situation, right? It's basically ingrained in their own actions and the way they interact with the environment over the course of the plot of the plot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, even from, you know, the start of it, um, when we go, when we start in the garage, you know, you see, you know, it's very home base, right? It's, it's very grounded in that way. You know, they're not there. The story is set in South, South Los Angeles. Um, it's not set in off Wilshire or it's not set uh, in Beverly Hills. You know, it's set in kind of underbelly of South Los Angeles. Um, but again, without trying to speak to that and just showcase it as a normal everyday life between this father and the son dynamic. Mm, that's very interesting. That's very interesting. And. I guess uh, I'm curious to know if what any films in particular influenced the creation of this work. Did you look to any particular movies or directors just as an added an added influence? Um, one of the multiple, um, and I took bits from, you know, uh, kind of their approach to cinema. Um, Alfonso Cuarón um how his approach to Roma um just the way he portrayed you know his home city as with a sense of pristine and um elegance and with the sense of respect through the cinematography um and Roma is either the shots are moving slowly and carefully or they're very static and still um to really place you into the moment of what's happening um and a lot of times, you know, when you see people try to shoot films in Mexico or like even South Los Angeles, they have this like handheld rapid gritty feel where, you know, somebody might interpret those spaces as poetic and calm. So for me, when I go through South Los Angeles, while people see it as all right, gritty, you know, disturbance, you know, you go, you drive through there in the morning, it's so quiet. It's so serene, um, but you wouldn't know that unless you take a chance to experience the community. I feel and, that few films do that nowadays. Mm -hmm. You said what? I feel that very few films even just capture, not just from a community aspect, but just from an environmental aspect of the calmness you described. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and it's it takes one to kind of lean into that and hear it that way, right? So you have to be understanding of like the space that you're in, but then how do you see it? So um, one of the things I feel like I missed that I really wanted to get in the film was like there's always these planes that's hovering over South Los Angeles, right? Because the airport is like 10 minutes away. And it's so quiet when the plane just flutters down. And it's beautiful. And it's beautiful, right? But again, you have to be aware of it to try to depict it. Or just like the street wires and how it hangs, like goes across the sky. It's like, oh man, that's beautiful. I see beauty in that. But again, I can't capture that beauty unless I recognize it or I see beauty in that environment or space. It's like an environmental beauty. I think I know what you're talking about because you know, when you mentioned the airport, the the sound of the airplane, I've seen that in plenty of movies that take place in LA where that that sound is captured. And it makes me think of the church bells in those old western towns in those old mm. in old westerns, where there's just like a sense of silence. But when the bell goes ringing everything mm -hmm. is, all that silence is disturbed but you feel that it's part of the environment i don't know i guess i feel i, I have you seen a fistful of dollars by sergio leone oh uh, no i haven't seen that i haven't seen that one yet well there is a moment like that where there's this quiet the sense of quiet among the town that clint eastwood enters and you know when the bell ringer starts ringing the bell mm. there's like this immediate awareness from all the people there but it's almost mm. environmental Mm. I don't know how to describe it. It just feels like it's something natural that is part of it rather than something that just simply calls attention to it. Exactly, exactly. And and that's where we talk about like how does the environment tell a story, right? And sometimes letting the environment come to you and speak speak its truth to you and you just have to be the person to listen. Um, I think the uh, filmmaker, his, uh, his name is slipping my mind. He directed... Um, the Florida Project. Uh, uh, remember them either. Um, he, he was the director of the Florida Project, and he directed uh, Tangerine. Um, it, it will jump into my brain in a few minutes, but um, he mentioned sometimes it's not about him, um, you know, speaking out loud and about his voice. It's about the community. It's about listening to the community's voice. And he just taking the community's voice and depicting it in a way that's more honest and true to it, right? So when you talk about the bells in the city or in the small town, you know, the filmmaker Sergio Leone is simply just uh, listening to it. And he's then just projecting through it, through his gifts and talent as a storyteller. I just um, uh, looked up the name of the director you mentioned, Sean Baker. Yeah, Sean Baker, that's his name. I didn't know he directed both Tangerine and Florida Project. Yeah, he did. He did. And, you know, he always talks about going to different spaces and communities that he might not be from or aware of, but, you know, he leans into the community's voice and not so much of his own, you know, um, but he has a technical craft and the ability as a director to project the voice in a way that is visually honest and true to the space. Um, and so as a film director, that's something I always try to like lean into It's just like, what's being spoken to me and how do I take it and or accept it and present it in a way that is beautiful and respectful to the space that I'm in. Do you think that because Netflix released this short film, it gives an avenue for more short films to be produced on a wider scale? Because with prior discussions of other filmmakers I've had, 
although they enjoy making short films, they don't, it doesn't seem like they have a very optimistic view of where short, short film cinema is going. Yeah. I mean, short film cinema, it's, it's one that has many vehicles avenues. So I was a part of a directing program with indeed um, rising voices that was also collaborated with uh, Lena Waste company, Hillman Grad productions. And they funded uh, 10 short films for each $100,000. And it got distribution on Amazon Prime. Mm. So with Amazon Prime, um, you know, with 10 collective short films, there's a way in a sense to monetize off of that rather than just one short film. Um, so there's that business aspect of it. Um, that I'm still learning, I'm still trying to get grab a hold of. But then you look at with, you know, short films and it being produced and made. And as a director, for me, I look at short films as a way to also experiment with your craft, right? I don't see short films as a way to monetize. There's ways that can be. Um, and directors, they producers should explore that. But for me, it's a way of, it's like, how can I visually work on my craft and the stories that I'm trying to tell with maybe a minimal budget and maybe the resources that I have, but it gives me a chance to continue to tell stories with what's in my pocket and what's available. Um, granted, short films do run expensive more than you know a lot of other projects. You're looking at $25,000, dollars $60,000 for a short film. That's not easy money to find. Um, but with programs that supporting short films, such as Netflix or um, Indeed or Amazon Prime, that gives you a way as a director to continue to hone in on your voice. So, you know, to, to wrap that up is just, I don't look at short films as a monetizing uh, medium. Um, for me, is purely artistic and expressionistic in that way. Were all those were those ten short films you mentioned just all part of one particular subject, or they all did they all focus on individual subjects? So, uh, in a way, both. So the ten projects, um, there's a vision, there's a theme that uh, has to be followed or a template was that they all have to address the idea of work because Indeed is a hiring corporation. Mm. Uh, so they're focused on getting people jobs and opportunities. So the short film kind of uh, plays into the theme that Indeed's kind of mission statement of work. So in each of the short films, you will find the themes of, you know, uh, job opportunities and, you know, occupations and stories within those. Um, but each of the films addresses totally different worlds and topics. So with my film, it was about a kid who works at a barbershop um, and uses the money to pay homage to his mom who passed away. But then you might have another film that's about a woman in the early 90s who's trying to connect with her daughter uh, back in Haiti, right? And she works as a, uh, she works in a kind of laundry mat type environment, right? Where she cleans clothes. So you have these films that, yes, addressing one topic, but that addresses different arrays of communities. Like basically a similar theme of connection, essentially. Mm -hmm. 
I was asking because I, when it comes to being more of a hiring company, I didn't know if that would take away from the theatricality that I feel that short films should have, whether they do monetize or just simply focus on the expressionistic aspect. I remember yeah. one prime example was uh, back in two fat late 2008, there was this animated collection of shorts celebrating the success of the dark night called mm. Batman Gotham night. And they were six, 10 minute episodes where they all focus on a similar plot. It takes place one year before the dark night or after or in between both the first and second film. And they're all in there six different shorts, but they're all by different artists. It's an mm. anime film and mm. the same universe, but in a sense where each story has like a definitiveness to it and it illustrate and they all border on the same theme. And I was wondering if the 10 shorts you that were worked on took a similar approach. Yeah, it's similar in that way of like it has to address this theme of work. But then, you know, when you watch all 10 short films and granted, I didn't watch the six short films. Um, they all look different, feel different. It's you had to kind of like really like from an outside perspective, you have to really be in tune to search out. It's like, oh, all these films are addressing the theme of work um, because it's just the storytellings are just very vast. Um, well, I have the same experience with the film I just described, because even though they're by different artists, you feel like that they're building towards something much larger and sharing mm -hmm. the same themes. And I would recommend Batman Gotham Night because as someone who likes short films, and I'm sure like anybody you like Batman, mm. you'll find the whole the whole film on YouTube. At least I think they might still have it. What was what was your favorite uh story that really appealed to you that you remember? Of those six shorts, well, there's one of them where it takes place between the present and the past, and Batman is in a sewer chasing a criminal. He gets shot and he's severely injured and over the course of the flashbacks you see his travels to india mm. he was studying where he was taking on one of the practices and he was studying meditation with with a, a, a woman a female mystic who was banished by what are known as the the, the fakirs mm. i don't know much about hinduism or the indian culture and he asks her i need you to help me to get help me deal with my pain and you see just the different phases of him meditating throughout that dealing with the psychology that drives his pain while in the present time he's just dealing he's just trying to navigate himself out of the sewer with a bullet wound in his stomach mm. that he managed to treat to some degree and at the end of both sequences in the past after he's helped the woman from these men who are discriminated against her because of just the culture and how she was banished for outsmarting the the prophets she tells him that she's taught him everything he can that his pain is too great for her to handle and then in the present time he finds himself in this in this part of the sewer with garbage bags and just loads of guns under them and he just keeps grabbing them and grabbing them and at the end alfred picks him up and he tells him to take my hand sir and he says i can't and he's holding all these guns in his hand in his arms mm which basically illustrates he'll never be able to let go of his pain. Mm. That's the thing that created him. Mm. I love that kind True. of visual storytelling with very simplistic dialogue. Mm. 
Yeah, I mean, one, um, that's something you mentioned. There's so many things to even go into that. One is like off what you just mentioned, like the simplistic dialogue, right? I think, you know, with the story that you mentioned, there's a lot of visual elements I see in it, right? Mm -hmm. In contrast to him in India, to him in the sewer, right? You know, even maybe how he's dressed in this particular part of his life when he was in India compared to now right? The, the scars he have now compared to, you know, there was maybe not as physical pain that he was dealing with, but more so emotional, mm -hmm. you know, and that contrast of, you know, the emotional pain we deal with is it just as heavy as the physical pain that we're into now. Um, and I think that's, that's such a beautiful concept. For some reason, I feel warmth and darkness, but yet he's still in the same space. Um, and then even with Batman, um, like the the idea of pain, right? Holding on to the guns and holding on to like, in essence, his trauma. You know, that's why Batman, like he's, when we talk about like comic book heroes, like he's my favorite one because there's so many elements of complexity to his situation. Oh, uh, yeah. Of grief and how do you deal with grief? And what's your response to it rather than what's your, your reaction to it? And Batman, he's always dealing in the space between response and reaction. Uh, am I reacting to the death of my parents or am I responding to it? And there's a difference, right? You know, something my therapist always talk, talks to me about is how do you respond to situations versus reacting to them, right? And Batman, sometimes he's teetering on the line of both, right? You know, is this an emotional thing he's gearing towards or is this an intellectual thing where he's really trying to help and he's really trying to save um, rather than, um, you know, dealing or reacting to getting revenge? Is he on the revenge or he is, you know, trying to actually help the community? Where is Batman? You know, um, you could argue that the latest interpretation of him tackled that because uh, I don't know if you saw the recent The Batman film, but yeah. well... What I loved about it was that it posed the question of whether his actions are really having a real significant impact because, yeah, he's tackling crime and he's attacking criminals, thugs, and even gangsters, but he's not attacking the core issues within the society that create men like that. And mm -hmm. that was a fascinating approach. I mean, let's not lie. I mean, we do. I'm sure plenty of us enjoyed him beating that thug in the beginning because he was the type of person who enjoyed yeah, you could say that economics and even the environment formed him, but the guy definitely enjoys hurting people. Yeah, and that's why he called himself Vengeance, right? <laughs> now, directly from actually from a there's actually a comic book where that's directly taken from where he confronts the penguin and he mm. said refers to himself as Vengeance. So they and um, it's strange they didn't mention that comic as an influence. They go for the more classic ones. Mm. That's interesting. That's interesting. And even with, like, you mentioned, like, is what he's trying to do really, you know, affecting things, right? Because, again, like, when we look at even poverty, yes, you know, there's certain underlying themes with that, but a lot of that stems from things that's higher than us, right? So how can Batman really make his impact felt? And it, it even poses the question of, like, what is a superhero and is Batman necessary? right is what he's doing necessary is it having an impact because is the real problem is something that's systematic 
right? So somebody like a Harvey Dent is more effective as a superhero than someone like Batman, right? And that's why, you know, I love the whole Batman, even going back with Christopher Nolan work to now, even the more recent Batman, it's like they are tackling those issues um, in a way I think that's way more thought provoking. Yeah. Many superhero films or made, I don't like to say superhero or comic book films don't really offer as much. What's very interesting is that when you mention how it's systematic, that even the and even working within this, you mentioned how Harvey Dent works, could be a superhero, but then again, he works within that very same system that is so mm. broken, it can easily yeah. corrupt him. Because, and that's why it even raises the question as to maybe there's more legitimacy to Batman, but it's just too complicated. Even at the end of The Dark Knight, yeah, we all cheered at the end how Batman takes the fall for Harvey Dent's murder and makes a, a noble sacrifice. But at the end, at the same time, he did behave like an authoritarian because he made mm. the decision for other people against mm. them without trusting them. He basically hid, told a lie to hold society together, thinking it would hold some sense of order. And it did to a certain sense. But then you see yeah. in Dark Knight Rises, which was highly, was highly attacked as this anti-blue collar film when it's not about that. It's showcasing you something very tribalistic about human beings. I mean... Mm. When you, I don't know how much you remember about the Dark Knight Rises, but there's a, there's a, there was this confusion that Bane is the character when he mobilizes his army. It's like this, it's be, it's like being depicted as this. He's depict pretending to be this leftist revolutionary, uniting the working class, but that was just a facade to mobilize an army. Yeah. Well, in some way, it's Christopher Nolan ta tackling the huge wealth gap. And obviously, The Dark Knight Rises was post-2008, following the financial crisis, whereas The Dark Knight was right when it was happening. Mm, yeah, and that's so true. And like now that you've mentioned that, I'm like, oh, you're right, you know, because when I watched it, of course, I saw it from, you know, the basic layer. I was like, you know, you know, the left with the leftists and, you know, um, attacking more so high upper class but again it's like you look into society is that you know people are sometimes creating organizations to kind of mask their true agendas right even with Bane you know when we find out that oh well he's not really the person um constructing or organizing this plan right he's just someone who's executing it there's a larger power there's a larger you know brain behind this um execution that he's just um, simply following, right? Of course, he's one of the leaders, but, you know, that we saw in the end as like, okay, well, Bane isn't the, Bane isn't really the true, you know, uh, antagonist, it's someone else, right? Mm. And so he's more so second in command of that. Um, and a true organization have different agendas than what Bane was proposing. Um, or what Bane was showcasing. Pretending to propose because- yeah. They didn't think he, they felt that he was just, all the working class people that sided with him believed he was just using the bomb that he was threatening Gotham with as a, as just a, as a threat, but he really was going to detonate that. And then you realize him and Talia have a very nihilistic view of the world. Mm. They just want to poison. They just want to spread their, the poison they felt because in their minds, the world was a prison because they grew, were born in a prison where the idea yeah. of hope 
was just a joke in their minds and they just wanted to share that they were like more extreme versions of what Liam Neeson's character was mm-hmm. but again I think that, that that's what's the great thing about characters like Batman it, I think we've we've reached a period of that character's history where you're becoming more self-conscious of how morally complex he is as to whether he is a superhero I look at him as just like a there's actually a, a brilliant scene from one of the Arkham games where he, where Alfred just grabs him and tells him because he's been injured after too many fights in one particular moment, he says, you're, oh, come on, you're not some vig- hardened vigilante. You're a young man with a trust fund and too much anger. Mm. Wow. And that tells you everything about the idea of the superhero. Is it more self-centered? Was it always as noble as we perceived it through prior interpretations and not just of this character, but other characters? Mm. Yeah. And, and that's why for me, I was, you know, it goes back to like, is it a response or reaction, right? Is he just going out to getting, is this a response to getting revenge for his parents of the pain that he's still holding on to? Well, in that case, is that true service, right? The result of it, Maybe because, yeah, you might be taking out thugs and criminals and stuff like that, um, quote unquote thugs and criminals. But to me, it's like, what's your intentions? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if you really want to make a difference, okay, well, it's taking out this bottom lower, you know, underworld society is a difference that needs to be made in Gotham. Right. Or is there a different fight that needs to happen? Um, you know, hence, you know, uh, Harvey Dent, but as you mentioned, it's like Harvey Dent is still working in that system um, that is still corrupt. And as much good intentions as he has, we see again, you know, he's still he, human. Yeah. And he falls under it, you know? And so it just, and that's why I think Batman, again, is one of the better comic books um, and comic superheroes that we have because there's so much discussion, there's so much debate, um, there's so much reflection of today's society. You know, even when you're dealing with like political elections and you know, how, you know, you know, how do we uh, address some of our social economic issues that's playing in us today? You know, it's like Batman kind of is a, is a mirror of that, but you know, he's just in a, you know, um, a bat, outfit and cloth so is that's why it's like one of my favorites because it goes so much in depth beyond the surface do you feel that we're in an environment that can create a better means of storytelling given that most cinemas nowadays are just showcasing either not showing either franchise films or tentpole films or just superhero films um you know like it's funny that you mentioned that because I was just thinking on that um, earlier this week um, because I was reading a couple things about She-Hulk and kind of, you know, the series is now kind of, uh, from what I hear, I still got to watch it. Um, I still got to make time to really watch it because I don't like to make comments on something unless I've seen it and judge it for myself. Mm-hmm. But again, it's not really getting much positive feedback. And, um, really? and now... Yeah, from what I've put up, from what I've been reading, um, hearing again, I can't make uh, any assumptions because I have not watched it, um, and I don't want to make that statement. Um, it's just based off from what I hear and the further discussion of like where Marvel is going. And if they're Disney fying Daredevil, uh, 
when uh, I saw that, I was that's what made me just think, well, I haven't seen any of those shows, but once I saw that Daredevil was in that uni well, in that Disney Plus universe, I was just like, and I know he was part of that universe, but in his own separate way, because I know that they took off a lot of those Netflix Marvel shows and put them on Disney Plus, and a lot of those don't belong in that in that platform. Yeah. And is you know, it, it goes to the idea of you know, even going back as far as Mars Scorsese's comment, you know, um, that, you know, su superhero films aren't, um, aren't quote unquote cinema or class or should be classified as cinema. And before I kind of argued against it because I was like, well, well, what does cinema means? How do we define cinema? And, you know, is cinema, cinema could be a range of things. It could be anywhere from like a film like Fruitvale Station you know, to a story like Iron Man, right? You know, cinema, I do believe cinema has high art and low art, you know, and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar wrote an article about it that, yeah, Marvel movies, they might not be as high art as, you know, the taxi driver, but it's still nonetheless is art. They do capture um, certain themes. Huh? They capture certain themes that a lot of, I'm sure the casual moviegoer won't notice but they're presently within them. Exactly, exactly. You know, even when I watch Iron Man, it's like, oh, here's a man who's conflicted about, you know, certain issues or moral, you know, complexities when it comes to, hey, you know, my weapons that I'm creating while it's generating me wealth, but it's harming a certain group of people and the globe is like, all right, well, which one weighs more, right? What sacrifices do I need to make as a human being, right? And I feel like, wow, that's an important theme that you can get from another film as well that people might deem cinema. Oh, you know? you could, oh, sorry. Oh, no, go ahead. You could argue. I mean, I'm not a big fan of Iron Man 2, but I felt one of the most interesting elements of that was the debate as to whether he should own the Iron Man suit or give it to the, to the people, basically, to the military, which wanted mm -hmm. to replicate it. But when you look at what the military-industrial complex is... Mm -hmm there's like a fine line between which poison do you give it to? Because at the end of the day, Tony Stark is just one man and mm. he could be, there's something very dictatorial about giving all that power to one person, as opposed to an institution, which probably does have altruistic ends, but is still filled with an assortment of flawed human beings, which in a hierarchy that it's basically like how we look at the CIA and FBI. Now, I mean, we have a more, openly cynical view of them but at the end of the day i think anyone's rational enough to realize not everybody who works in those organizations is this malicious actor mm -hmm. no, just, it's, it's a mixture of corruption and incompetence and that's something i think a film like iron man 2 tackles without giving you quite a good a definitive answer but again because the film's plot was a little messy mm -hmm. i don't think it really captured that to the full extent i agree and you know, and that just kind of, and even like the things that you mentioned, um, at least it was there. At least there was an attempt to really address that. Um, and as I'm looking into today's comic book movies, and I, I and I still see some attempt, but it feels lazier. Huh? Do you feel it's lazier? Very lazy, and it feels like they're rushed because they're just trying to get it out and you feel like there's a certain 
um, financial implications that they're looking for. And I get it. You know, it's the movie business. You know, that's kind of, you know, pe people are putting, you know, a product out there for people to see. Um, but I felt like with that, the material is being watered down a lot in comparison to the earlier comic book movies where I felt like the things were fleshed out and they had something stronger to say rather than just saying, all right, we need to put, you know, a Marvel movie out. We need to put a show out. We need, and that's where I feel like Martin Scorsese was addressing is that a lot of these movies are not coming from a place of sincerity and human emotion, right? Rather than a sense of financial um, result and gain. And those are, and that's the spirit of making the movie, not the spirit of trying to say something. Um, and that's where I'm conflicted at. You know, that's where I'm at a point of like, man, because I grew up a big fan of Marvel films. You know, I supported the earlier phases, but as I'm watching it now, I feel like I'm not growing or I'm not getting what I used to get from the earlier pictures. Um, and as cartoony as they may have been, at least there was an attempt to say something. Like even what you mentioned with Iron Man 2, right? The plot was messy. You know, sometimes the character direction where Tony Stark is going was sometimes uncertain. But at least those themes, those discussions came about um, where I feel like in today's um, uh, comic book films, particularly with Marvel, I'll say, you know, we're leaning into that. I haven't felt the same, you know, emotional heartbeat as I did in the earlier films. Damn, um, I'm more optimistic about the solo projects like Joker, Batman, mm -hmm. Batman and I mean, I, I know that Logan was part of the X-Men universe, but it was so radically it, different. It, it was so different. It, I don't even I don't even put Logan in that box. I kind of put it a little bit outside of it. Yeah, but it still operates in a way where like kind of like how Creed acknowledges even the bad Rocky films mm -hmm. because it kind of has to. But again, even though the only disappointment I have from the Batman is that they had to mention that they're making a trilogy, but that's not Matt Reeves' fault. I mean, that's the studio just, which kind of takes away the fun from it. The same way, like, even though a film like Black Panther was great, one thing that I, that met, that took away from it was the fact that they released a trailer of Infinity War before that, where they show Black Panther, and it kind of eliminates the idea that this character might be in any danger and the, any real mm. emotional investment you have with him in the film is mm. a result of how good the movie is rather than no, how much you like the character as opposed to how good the story was. And I think it's a great story. Mm. I think Killmonger is a great villain. I mm. like even the influences that they put into that. I mean, I don't know if you're aware that Michael, are you an, a fan of anime? Uh, uh, I'm getting into it now. Well, I know that some of the the design of the character for that film for Michael B. Jordan was anime based, and I know that he's a fan of anime as well. So, oh, wow. So I just found that rather interesting. But again, I'm more optimistic about films like Joker and the Batman because they operate as love letters to old cinema in many ways. Mm. The Batman was just basically. Matt Reeves' love letter to Seven and Zodiac and old noir films. And Joker, well, you could basically, I mean, you could get a nickel for every time it was mentioned that, it, that Martin Scorsese's Taxi Driver and Last King of Comedy were influential in his conception. Yeah. And I, 
and I'm with you on that, you know, when you mention it, because it's like, I'm not, maybe I'm growing tired of the cinematic universes, you know, um, because I, you know, DC is now they're trying to search for their quote unquote, Kevin Feige, who's going to run their, you know, DC cinematic. They are or they aren't? They are. Oh. They are. So they're currently in search for someone to now uh, lead that the way that Kevin Feige led Marvel. Um, and so for me, I'm like, when you start doing that, now it, it creates this issue of now, how does this story link into this story? And now it's about putting out multiple stories that I feel like may, may not serve as a just purpose as a individual or independent Joker film might do or independent Batman film might do. Um, and I feel like those work best. Like those are the best films when you talk about like, you know, a lot of the DC films, those were the better ones, right? Because they were more so focused. They weren't so much about, okay, how do we connect all these different storylines rather than how do we tell this specific story? And we could bring in those small pieces in here, but it's not about expanding wide. It's more so about going deep. Um, and that's why I like more so about those independent, you know, one-off films versus these universes that I feel like is there to make money. So the soul and the spirit of trying to tell a story isn't there, right? And to try to put out as much, quote unquote, the word is used, content out there rather than what we deem as like films it's very interesting that you bring up the cinematic universe because i have mixed feelings about it because i feel it works as a double-edged sword because on one end it's growing at such an expansive rate in the movie universe but in many ways it is the best rep live representation of a comic book universe because if you grew up reading comics, especially continuity-based ones, you felt that all the different characters in the superhero world were connected in some way, or mm. you see a character from that you, from one particular comic cameo on another. Like mm. I don't, I used to read Frank Miller's Daredevil comics, and Spider-Man would would appear in some issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and you felt like that there was a universe built on that, mm. but obviously because more people watch movies as opposed to comics. I think that burnout effect is going to happen much fa faster than it would from reading books like uh, reading comic books. So that's the double-edged sword nature of it. With films like Joker and Batman, I think they give room for them to explore other avenues and even make films on characters in DC that they could probably use other cinematic influences for. One DC character I really like that I don't know if they could ever take the risk of making is Mr. Miracle. Hmm who is an escape artist and he's from the, one of the like this he's from space and he's from a planet called apocalypse and he was just tortured repeatedly in his attempts to escape from the psychological brainwashing him and, he, and other children were put through mm. and the comic book tackles a lot of dark themes like his identity crisis his suicidal thoughts and mm. just I don't know. I guess I'm babbling off here, but uh, no. I like what Batman and Joker have done in that sense. And Logan as well, because Logan does not feel, you mentioned, it doesn't feel like it's part of that X-Men universe. I mean, not just because it's rated R, but because mm -hmm. it just feels like an actual film. Mm -hmm. And 
And the thing about, like, because you mentioned um, kind of the comic book movies with Daredevil and you had Spider-Man coming in, it felt like with those things, it felt like there was a universe that was kind of more so coming into the story rather than the story trying to go out and expand to different universes. Uh, that's a great way you to know. And, and with that, when, so if I'm telling my story, well, you know, we're focused on these themes and whatever comes in it, then that's fine, right? And, you know, it can help complement the story or the narrative that we're trying to tell or the themes that we're trying to present. But when you're trying to expand outward and you're kind of reaching out to then, and you have to understand that, you know, and as sure as you may know, it's like, you know, now you're dealing with production. Now you're dealing with costs. Now you're dealing with labor. Now you're dealing with, okay, well, we got to get this film out between now and the other, you know, now in this deadline. Right, all these other factors then kind of you know affect how the story is presented, and as a result, kind of waters it down. It certainly yeah, takes away from the experimental acts aspect as well. It, exactly, like even when I hear Christopher Nolan talk about his process in making The Dark Knight, you know, it wasn't about. And granted, who knows? He may have been lying, or he may not have been telling the truth. But he mentioned his intention was like we made one. And that was it until the second one approached itself. And we built off that. We Yeah, we left our, our door open, but it wasn't this attempt to try to tell these big, broad stories, but really try to tell the story of Batman, his origin story. And then when we went from his origin story, where is he at now, right? And his, you know, personal conflicts and his, you know, back and forth within himself. And then his almost dealing with his midlife crisis so to speak, right? That he's not as young as agile as he used to be. He is missing the love of his life. All these things that these weight, these burdens he's carrying, how much further can he carry it more? And so like those themes mixed in with Alfred trying to be a moral guide or more compass for Batman, those present itself for like powerful themes that I feel like, again, happens when you lean inward and in trying to tell a story rather than trying to expand outward. Um, and I think that's the same way that they're approaching, you know, the Batman, even though I think they kind of greenlit the trilogy a little bit too soon, but it felt like, okay, let's just try to tell this first Batman story, right? And just tell it the best way we possibly can. And if it comes out well and it's appreciated, then we could look into the second one. And I think that's what they're kind of giving their trust to Matt Reeves with. And I like that with that recent Batman, they had a lot of hints that there's already a universe in there, but not in a way where they're calling attention. I mm -hmm. mean, not just that Joker deleted scene that was on Twitter, mm -hmm. but, but even that scene where he takes that supplement that he injects himself. At first, I thought that was an adrenaline shot, but it was actually hinted that that's something from Bane's venom storage. And mm. gives you the implication he's either fought this Batman has already fought someone like Bane or just he's infiltrated the lab where his where his uh his venom compound is made because he took like a small dose and there's actually yeah. a comic book where he does take that that venom supplement to a level where it destroys him mm. and but uh going back to christopher nolan and his attempt of making a batman trilogy thing is i think a lot of people conflate when christian bale says that uh nolan wanted free batman movies I'm sure he wanted a trilogy, but and but I would think he still did it in a way where he was self-aware as to whether he could do it because 
Mm-hmm. Back when he made that first hint in Batman Begins of the Joker card, the studio was actually like, what are you doing? Are you, are you teaching a sequel? And like, he's told this story repeatedly. And the first time I heard it was when, uh, was when he was on that radio show, The Treatment with Elvis Mitchell. Mm. And he told him about that, but he did it from the level of where he's not teasing a sequel. He just gives you the idea that this world and these characters will go on living forever even after the credit, the, it, the screen cuts to black. And a lot of films do that. It gives you the impression that things are not entirely finished, but this is the story for now. Yeah, even at the end of the trilogy, when Robin, you know, he goes into the Batcave and he steps onto a platform, he's risen up, mm. right? It's like, I remember when I was young, I was like, oh man, is there going to be now a Robin spinoff? Like, is it, no. you know, but it's just teasing that the greater world that's out there. And you don't need to see it. With Nolan, he likes to do this a, a lot, which is a great technique he uses. Like, he let the audience imagine and create their own narrative. He gives room for the audience to imagine and present a world and let their mind run in that space. Yeah, he did that with films like The Prestige especially mm-hmm. Inception, where he, yeah. gave, where he made it irrelevant as to what happens at the end, what happens, whether he, um, Leo DiCaprio is really in, in the dream, but he's basically telling you he's, he's basically taking that leap of faith he was denying himself throughout the, the whole narrative of the film. Mm, true. And that's what really matters. He's looking at his children. He's not trying to determine whether he's in the real world or not, which is an existential question itself because i mean i think one of the best films to present that is the matrix Mm. and the idea of the simulation because i brought up this idea of i think a lot of people misinterpret what the simulation might be because i don't believe in the brain and the jar theory which you can't even prove or disprove but the idea of a simulation itself is what is a simulation it's a narrative and multiple narratives can be framed and i think these past two and a half years have proven that Maybe the Matrix was much more ahead of its time than it is because you can tell a story on a wide scale and then new information can come in, but certain factors can be manipulated where it either shifts in the benefit of those controlling the narrative mm. or trying to at least keep things sound. Mm. Oh, for sure. For sure. I definitely agree when it's the idea of the Matrix being ahead of its time um, because it plays in so well into today's society that we live in. And like, what's real, what's false, you know, like even, you know, our use of our cell phones, right? Um, and the discussion of the meta universe and it's like, well, we're already kind first, of- Oh God. It's like, you know, it's like, we already almost simultaneously living in it because our Instagram or our Facebook characters, that's, that's what we live our lives through oftentimes. Many people is living their life through. And that's where they spend most of their time projecting who they are to people, right? It's almost as if you're stepping into this body um, through your phone and living throughout that space. And you don't even know, you can't even tell what's real and what's fake anymore. Right? A lot of films have tried to tackle that approach, but they've kind of failed to do that in many ways. Mm-hmm. I, it, I'm not a fan of the metaverse, so I'm not optimistic <laughs> about it. No, the metaverse, I, I'm not a fan of it either. Um, to me, that as someone, you know, who likes to feel the pain that, you know, or not not to say I like to feel the pain, but likes to understand, understands the value of the pain that we live in 
our real world um, and the value behind it. I don't want that to disappear, right? Because there's now it's like you're taking medication for something that's like, yo, this is natural, right? This is our daily day to day experience. You know, to neglect that or to erase that, to me, that seems unnatural to me, right? It's like the drug this, debate. Go ahead. It's like the drug war debate. Mm -hmm. It's perfectly okay to make all the a lot of other drugs that are le even less harmful than a lot of the drugs that are prescribed out there illegal, and it, and it just increases the the mass incarceration and criminalization in this country for stupid crimes. I mean, the fact that you can go to prison for carrying an ounce of weed in a certain state, as opposed, but yet something like Prozac, which is proven to be incredibly toxic, hmm. prescribed to people. Yeah. That's, and that's just kind of just the complexity world that we live in. Um, and that's why I try to keep it, um, for my life, I try to keep it very simple. Like even going back to the type of stories that I try to tell, I try to keep the storyline very minimal, but the emotion very complex. Um, because I feel like on, on just the human scales, like, you know, our wants are very simple. Um, but why we want it is very complex. You know, why we seek it, why we want to be a part of it. There's so many layers to that. But the idea of wanting it is very straightforward. And I just try to tell stories that kind of mimic or reflect that type of emotion um, of human experience that we live day to day, honestly. I feel that today there are a lot of stories that try and replicate the human experience, but from more ideological and po political elements, which kind of distort the narrative or at least get in the way of the narrative mm -hmm. meaning or something is so biased that it interferes with this the greater story at hand i mean just mm. look, just look at politics nowadays i mean the, the election from two years ago people were just so divided now at each other's throats that it's kind of created this this us against them mentality where you're not seeing the bigger picture mm. true True. And even like, you know, with the idea of biases and political uh, standoffs is like, I feel like now it's like, as that creep into films, it's like, all right, well, this is a gender based film, rather than it's like, well, taking a step off and letting film ask the question. And, you know, Alejandro Iñárritu, he always talks about that. And his approach to making films is that he wants his film films to propose a question rather than give an answer, right? And I believe like, you know, that's what these discussions are about. It's like proposing a question, like it's not about who's right or who's wrong, but it's about let's taking a step out of our side and looking to someone own and seeing why do they feel that way? Why are they responding to that way? And for them to do the same for me. Mm. Um, but it's sometimes hard to see that nuance to the film because no one doesn't want to take that step onto the other side people just want to get their agendas out um, they just want the simple answer or they just want to give the simple answer to people that mm. way it can be easier to get past the real issues at hand mm. i always think about this the whole the the last several years with the idea of of a tv of a reality tv host as president i mean i wasn't a fan of him but even when i fought when they accused him of being a fascist that they were missing the bigger picture ask yourself 
why would such a large population vote for a guy like Trump? Mm. That tells you something. And they try and simplify the reasons why rather than looking at the core issues that would lead so many people desperate enough to choose something like that. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And that can be weaponized. Oh, and and we, we've seen it weaponized, <laughs> you know, even in like uh, in the physical, um, you know, even going back to, you know, June, uh, January 6th. Um, you know, and those those things is why for me, again, going back to like cinema and the purpose of it, it's like with so much destruction and so much opposition in the world, it's like, how does film, how do you recreate films to help kind of bring all parties together, right, rather than divide? And as I create films, as I'm looking towards what stories I'm trying to tell, it's like, okay, how do I still stand on my truth as a storyteller, right? And how do I, because, you know, you, you don't want to be in a place where you start pandering. You're trying to pander to both sides because now you lose your self-identity, right? But how do you create a story where it's like, it's, it's a way to empathize with everyone's emotional feeling. It's, it's what we call the emotional truth, right? The universal truth, even going back to like the film Us, you know, was like raising a child, right? Not even just a child with a disability, but what's the struggle with raising a child? Whether you on the blue side or you on the red side or whatever side you want to call them, and many people do have children, yeah. right? Many people still struggle with that. And so, yes, the, yeah, the father and son may be black, but he's still a human being that's just trying to raise a child. It's not about being black. It's about simply, I'm trying to get my child to understand this life lesson through the game of baseball. And main parents probably experience that, but maybe through cooking or maybe through golfing or maybe through some other extracurricular activity, right? And you don't need to be on the blue or the red side to understand that. You just need to be human, right? To ask when you were making your short film, were you debating any other type of sport to use to capture this? Or was it just simply focused on the father and son? I mean, you naturally went with baseball because there is something very cultural about baseball mm -hmm. in America. Oh, for sure. That, that's a really great question um, because at first it was basketball. You know, I first wrote it as basketball, but then... I thought about, you know, when we go back to like our truth. And, you know, for me, I was like, man, I love baseball as a kid. I love baseball as a kid. You know, that was my favorite sport. I used to just watch it like every Saturday morning, it would come on on Fox and I'll sit in front of my screen watching it. And it was so calm, it was so therapeutic. Um, but yet, and then also within the, the black community, you know, many people don't understand, but they're like small baseball baseball organizations. Um, it just don't receive as much funding and, and attention as some of the basketball programs. Um, and so for me, you know, baseball was like, many people don't associate blackness and black culture with baseball. But, you know, you look inside history with the Negro League and, you know, the like our home run leaders are African-Americans. <laughs> when it comes to major league baseball right why do you think that is why do you think they have more more confidence in more association with basketball than just baseball well baseball well basketball the thing is baseball requires such a 
it requires it's such it requires such a strong structure. You need almost nine players, you know, on a team to play it, right? Where basketball, you know, I don't really need anybody to, you know, to play basketball. I could just pick up a ball and go dribble and shoot a hoop, mm-hmm. right? And even if I don't have a hoop, I could just dribble to myself. So it's more accessible where baseball requires such a system and requires such a structure to play to be effective because it's like, okay, how can I catch with myself? I can't really catch with myself. Mm-hmm. All right. I could maybe try to, I could throw it up and try to hit it, but then I got to go run and get it and get it, bring it back. Whereas basketball is just like, all right, I just had this ball and I can bounce it all day long. So it's, so it's more accessible. Um, even just the marketing of it, you know, basketball is a very up and down game and there's a lot of excitement to it. Um, that draws, that leans on athleticism and, you know, excitement where baseball is a more so subtle, soft and technical game, right. That you really got to be exposed to it to truly appreciate it. Mm. So you have those different aspects. Um, and because I wanted to show kind of like what we haven't really seen in the community, where it's like, yo, baseball is being taught. It's a reality. There's baseball fields in the, the neighborhood that we shot um, the film in was in South LA. Um, and that was a baseball park that's being used that actually uh, little leagues come in and play at. And most of the little league team are kids of African-American background right? They're African-Americans, Black people. So for me- I can't recall the last good baseball film. Hmm? I can't recall the last time a baseball movie was made. That's a good question. Like, I mean, I money, money, but I mean, it can't just be Moneyball from 2011. That's the last one I remember. And the last one I remember that featured people, you know, that were black or african-american was maybe hardball and that was maybe like early 2000 2001 late yeah 2001. yeah way with you know uh, it's funny because keanu reeves still looks young um more or less i mean he's not i don't know i mean it's hard with the the whole look he's the jesus look he's adopted because <laughs> in every movie now he just looks like john wick that's very true that's very true um but no like you know baseball is just for me it was just a and even when we talk about like uh children with disabilities baseball is such a technical sport so you really gotta like teach the fundamentals there's a lot of fundamental aspects of it as far as how you place the glove you know how you throw the ball you know how you run the bases there's a lot of the word how rather than just doing what it Baseball, yes, it requires some, a lot of athleticism, but mostly requires a lot of skill. So that's why when you watch a baseball game, you might see a lot of players who are out of shape, right? But they have strong and uh, foundational technique. And teaching that with a child with a disability, that creates a more um, impactful story. It creates something that's a little bit more nuanced than, hey, him just trying to teach, you know, a child how to shoot a ball through hoop, which that still requires technique. But baseball, there's a lot of more subtlety and nuance to it. Do you think that technicality is missing from a lot of sports cinema nowadays? Um, 
you know, I mean, one, we just have to address the idea of sports cinema. It's like, where is it? Um, you know, because I was like, all right. It mostly focuses on just the emotional aspects of the core character rather mm-hmm. than the technical, technicality of the sport. I haven't seen that Ben Affleck movie, The Way Back, which I heard was a very unconventional sports drama. I don't even know what sport it, what sport it focuses on because I haven't it, seen it. It's, it focuses on basketball. I haven't watched it, but um, I've seen, you know, the trailer to it. And but it's a it's a, it focuses on him um, teaching a small uh, group of I think I believe it's college it's a college or high school between that age group um, but it deals with basketball. That's interesting. Oh, I heard it was different from the traditional sports film, even yeah. in the even in the emotional journey of the protagonist. So I got to check it out. And I think that director Gavin O'Connor is best when he tackles sports movies rather than thrillers mm-hmm. I, if you've seen is i haven't seen miracle but i heard that got a lot of acclaim and uh which is a hockey film and I, yeah. i'm a big fan of warrior i think that's a film that's going to be remembered over time mm. yeah I, I for me i'm i'm curious just to see like you know where is the sports movies in today's landscape like you know what was the last good like football movie to come out right you know uh, it's you know it's like I I'm curious to see like all right is there anything out here you know um basketball movie again you know the way back by Ben Affleck but even baseball is like you know sports is a space where there's there's a space with so many different characters to explore because Mm -hmm. you're dealing with a team aspect right um and you're dealing with backgrounds like all right these basketball players these football players it's like yeah they're the story that's on the field, but what about the story that's off the field when they go back home and the different things that they got to overcome in that space, right? So sports offers so much, so much landscape and a huge canvas to tell powerful narratives. I'm surprised um, that I haven't seen as much as today as I've done it, as I experienced in the past growing up as a kid. There's someone who mentioned, who shares your, your views to that same degree, Bill Simmons from the Ringer podcast. And uh, well, he has multiple podcasts like the rewatchables and interviews with Bill Simmons. And he was talking with Casey Affleck about how most of the sports films you now see even today are just either, either revolve around boxing, mm-hmm. which is kind of like you, would you think, would you think of boxing as like a safe bet nowadays in, in sports cinema? Uh, yeah, because with boxing, it doesn't, when you look at even the financial implications of it, right? It's one character, it's one journey, the the A plot could be him trying to, or him or her trying to win the belt or championship, and the B plot is, um, it's like, all right, where they may be going through at home, the underbelly of their matches. So, and it's just one character in their journey versus with you know, basketball, so to speak, you're dealing with five characters on the court on each side, right? So now that's 10 characters. But if you want to focus on one team, that's five characters, five different narratives, five actors you got to cast. There's so much complexity around that where it's difficult to sometimes pull off versus a boxing movie where it's like, all right, one character, you could capture him, you know, in his gym, boxing to himself. There's not that much coordination that got to be involved versus a basketball movie. Um, if you watch the behind the scenes of Coach Carter, 
they talked about like most of the players that were cast, they weren't basketball players. So you have to teach them how to play basketball. You have to teach them the passing fundamentals. You, if you want to throw him a player a, a pass and he has to dunk it, well, he has to learn how to do that, you know, and that's a lot, that's that's a lot more tough than having um, you know, a you know, you have to deal with one person and you have to teach him how to box. And even the idea of tackling multiple narratives within a team-oriented sports film is hard. I mean, you mentioned how you were asking, what's the last football movie? I wouldn't know if Kevin Costner's draft day is a football is much of a football film because he he plays more of a manager um, more of a managerial role rather mm-hmm. than a coach. I haven't seen it. I just saw the trailers. He just looks like the guy within the main room watching the stats, but I guess you could think of Gridiron Gang when you mentioned films like Coach Carter, Gridiron Gang, and oh God, I, I know there's one more, but they all. Adam Sandler, some... Well, Adam Sandler just came out with Hustle. Um, I didn't know that it was a sports film. Yeah, um, but even then, you know, like you looked at, there was an there was an issue, or not, I wouldn't say an issue, but something that they had to address was, you remember when I discussed that they had to teach. Um, actors how to play basketball mm. well in this film they have to teach um, basketball players how to act oh fuck so you're ready so now you gotta pick or choose what is what right that that different complexity that issue that's presented of like how do you make sure that you get the right performance because yes they took they taking care of the whole basketball performance but now you got to bring them into an emotional space where they have to portray that through performance art. And for someone who may not have that experience, well, now you got to bring the acting coach. Now you got to coach them up. And now you're dealing with basketball players who have their own lives, who have their own brands. And now they got to line in to uh, learn how to act in a few months, which is never a good thing. Yeah, and the idea of acting, of teaching someone how to act, I feel there's something that's very misleading about that because I believe anybody can act in a film as long as they understand what it means to be a human being. Mm-hmm. And I feel that that's something in the realm of acting which isn't, isn't they're unable to express it properly. I mean, I, I'm not a big fan of film school, but I went to film school for a screenwriter's workshop and there was a moment where we heard some people acting you know, overdoing yeah. it. And the fact that they, and that's just a prime example of how people misconceive of what acting is rather than being mm. a person. Mm. True, true. Um, I remember uh, Abbas Kurosami, he mentioned, um, you know, he likes to work with non-actors and he oh. tends to work with non-actors a lot. Which? Um, um, Abbas Kurosami. What's he made? Um, so he made uh, The Taste of Cherry. Um, he also made uh, Where's uh, the Friend's House. Um, he also made uh, The Close-Up. Um, yeah, so he's, you know, uh, an amazing Middle Eastern uh, director who, again, he focuses on minimalism when it comes to his stories. Um, but, you know, within that, that minimalistic story approach, he kind of explored wider global themes. Um, 
Do you think for these large scale films that we've been talking about, minimalism would be a, or would be appropriate or would mm. because of the scale of the film, do you think that might, that might pose as an interference? Because I think minimalism can be a positive tool, but do you think depending on the scale of the film, how it can be implemented? Yeah, so that's also a great thing um, because minimalism really just focuses on, all right, what is the focus? What's the driving point of the story? And it's about maybe a character or a group of people just want to complete this one task that has a, a internal effect. And it can even go back to the idea of, hey, you know, I'm trying to save this planet because I'm trying to protect my family, right? Rather than just trying to save the world because we want to save the world from this apocalyptic whatever, but it's like, no, I'm trying to protect my family. I So even starting off the film with, hey, with my children, my loved ones, and embracing them and knowing that this thing I got to fight is because, yes, I want to save the world, but yet I want my family to be safe. And, and you know, one film that did that well, that was like, as far as huge production value and scale, but still a very minimalist story was Top Gun. Top Gun for me first was- the second. Hmm? The first of the second, I've, I the, quit for the first one. The, the second one, um, to me, it was very, like, it was a very minimal story. It was like, hey, we have to um, complete this mission right stated from like the first 15 minutes of the movie we got to complete these missions but this mission is almost impossible and most of the story is the engine of trying to complete that mission but in completing that mission you deal with different variables of relationships past history but the goal is still very in sight mm. and the character that tom cruise plays i mean maverick is just another way of saying he's a rebel he does whatever he wants mm -hmm. regardless of what he's told Mm -hmm. so that certainly enhances the simplicity. I can't speak for it because I haven't seen the second one and I kind of quit for the first one because to tell you the truth, I feel if people were to see the first one today for the first time, it would feel so dated in terms of style and approach. It feels like you're watching a very mm. well-made music video. It, it is very dated. Even the ending, right? Like I remember watching the ending because I actually watched the first one right before I went to go see the second one because I just wanted um, to have some type of context when going to, to see the second version. Um, even the ending, I'm like, wow, this is so, uh, um, what we would call it, cliche, you know, because it's an 80s. 80s. It was, it's an 80 movies, right? So the character wins in the 80s film versus the 70s films, the character didn't always come out winning. If anything, sometimes the character lost, but that was a greater lesson that the film was trying to teach. Right? Tarantino said it best on Rogan when he said the 70s, there was just a lot of moral grayness and accepted moral grayness in narrative. Mm -hmm. shows. Yeah. And I think in the 80s, it was just like, I guess the 80s was the response to the 70s of like, you know, we just want to feel a sense of optimism, you know, and we want our characters, we want our heroes to win at the end of the day. Right. And so with Top Gun, the first one, you know, he, he gets the girl, he completes the mission, he gets promoted, <laughs> he he wins at everything in life, right? Yeah. And it's like, you know, it, and it's the reason why I love more so Korean cinema, 
is that, you know, in, in everything that you achieve, you're going to lose something, right? If you watch a lot of Korean cinema, is that, all right, if your main uh, protagonist wins something at the end, he has to lose something. Or so he had to pay a major price. Exactly. Exactly. Versus the first Top Gun, it was like, yeah, maybe, yeah, you can say that he paid the major price by losing his best friend, but there were just so many, I felt like, because he lost his best friend, they gave him the entire world. You know, whereas like, all right, he didn't have to get promoted and, you know, he didn't have to get the girl at the end, right? He could have just been the person who complete the mission and helped save it. And that would have been enough. But they gave him all the chips in the casino. Um, so, but I do think with the second Top Gun is an example of how to tell a, a, a minimal story but with such a large scope. Mm. And I feel like the best films, when we talk about like, you know, comic book genre films, the best ones kind of do that in a way of still understanding what the goal is, but still telling it with a sense of scale. Yeah, and a sense of realism that just isn't, anyone that realism implemented, there's still a level of ambiguity because I don't, I haven't seen the trailer. I don't even know if they have made a trailer for the next Joker film. I'm fascinated by the title they gave it because mm. it looks like they're still sticking to that artistic component that made it matter so much. But even if that was the only one, the ending, it gives you, it gives you a sense of realism about the world that they were crafting, but also some ambiguity as to what was really going on and where it's, it's pretty much led up to. Because mm -hmm. my personal thought was that it was all in his head. It's just a, a movie about a guy wanting to be significant because he's not even the the traditional Joker. And uh, mm. I don't know, when you watch Joker, it feels like you're watching the documentary ex exploration of a crazy person. You know, and, you know, and with that is it gives no of like. Sometimes it gives no of like, all right, what is the depiction of this? Um, and. I was just watching just a review that they had on Blonde. I was just reading some reviews because I'm I'm curious to check it out. And you know, they mentioned that it's a fictional portrayal of um Marilyn Monroe. Really? Yeah. And and I'm and I was like, interesting. It's a fictional portrayal of Marilyn Monroe. That's interesting. A fictional portrayal. That's really what stuck in my mind. And I was like, that's that sometimes in a way could be a little bit dangerous right it's also very meta in many ways yeah and and for me when going back to the joker it's like interesting you know the the portrayal of what goes on into you know someone who is mentally um unstable right and what's the reality of that but also what is kind of the fictionalized version of it. And it, it balanced, it teeters that line, you know, that raises concern for a lot of people, but then for other people, it's a way of interpretation, right? And there's no wrong way to approach it. Um, and so for me, when I look at the Joker, I feel like it's walking this fine tightrope, you know, be, you know, on the line of, oh, there's just an interpretation of it versus this is a accurate depiction of you know what a person who's mentally unstable goes through or experiences 
It's interesting you brought up that the Marilyn Monroe story would be a fictionalized version, because when you think about Marilyn Monroe and the impact she had on cinematic culture, nobody really knew who she was. And people mm. were absolutely shocked by her death, whether it was suicide or any whatever conspiracies were floating around at the time. But the idea that they're specifying that it's a fictionalized account, it seems like there's a meta aspect where they're fully addressing we're never going to know the truth about what happened to this, this poor girl. You're not mm. going to know whether she really did. Was she, was she really depressed because of the way she was depicted in culture as this highly sexualized icon as opposed to a human being? And mm. the movie Gladiator has similar elements because when you think about the time uh, era where Rome was having these gladiatorial games to distract the public from a lot of social and cultural issues that were going on in the society of Rome, using narrative to distract them is like a self-awareness within the film itself because the film is a fictionalized account because for one nobody really knows how marcus aurelius died you don't really know if his son killed did murder him and his son was a prick but he was emperor of rome for much longer than what the film shows mm. wow so it does address it in a similar way so it basically says that it just addresses the the aspect of narr how narrative plays a role in the way these things are often looked at from a, mm -hmm. from a far off lens. So, yeah, I mean, even um, what I'm hearing about the Woman King, right? Which um, the Woman King with Viola Davis. I don't know what that. I haven't heard about that. What is yeah. it? So, um, so it's about a group of women in an African country who are warriors. Right, and they're trying to protect their homeland from outside colonizers who's trying to prey on their community. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of it, you know, people mentioned that the Dora Milaje was um, inspired by these group of women. Um, and so, you know, the discussion behind it that um, it's kind of bubbling on the surface but haven't really caught fire is that these women, they were also slave traders, right? And so these women who are also slave traders, like, you know, are we, are we gonna depict that side of it or are we gonna leave that out? Or are we really, is this a fictional depiction of these women? You know, more so what our imagination, what these women are and who, who they were to be, or is this a, you know, a, a accurate depiction of, you know, the lives that they live and the impact that they had, you know, because with that, there's a lot of backlash that might come with, you know, the action that the women were taking during a time. Um, so that's also a thing as well, too, of like, okay, well, they could approach it kind of the gladiator way, where it's like, you know, there's, there's some truth that's bent you know, because who knows what is, who knows what, what, you know, um, but they're just trying to tell a story that I think reflects, you know, the empowerment of these women and kind of like, you know, using them as a marker for today. Because again, you know, when people talk about Black Panther, they always mention how much they love the Dora Milaje, right? They, that's for a lot of people, like they love the badass women. Well, here are the women that uh, inspired those characters um so yeah, the new black panther sequel uh 
yeah the new sequel it's basically the woman taking up the role of a that was of a, a lineage that was mostly male centered mm-hmm. true yeah and that's and that's crazy because i was just uh because my buddy who um who who brought that discussion to me um i thought about black panther 2 or you know wakanda forever and i was like if you look at it it's like it's mostly a uh, all women cast majority women cast mm. right you you look at you know now that black panther is gone and we don't know if killmonger is in the circle and we know that uh, oh no that, he's dead as a doornail too huh character his character died in the first film yeah <laughs> you know and then uh uh daniel kalula's characters won't be returning so if you look at it is you know, you have the Dora Milaje, you have Black Panther, uh, his queen, you have Shuri. Uh, it's, you know, you could look at that as a woman king, you know. So it's, it's an interesting parallel connection. It's interesting. I didn't know that Daniel Kalula wouldn't be returning because you think they would take advantage of that, given that his character was in the first film was kind of given an ambiguous ending and I mean, Chadwick, Bo- the passing of Chadwick Boseman, which was was sad. Obviously, that would be obvious for Black Panther too. But and with Killmonger's character dying in the first one, but mm-hmm. and I'm not. But then again, I'm not familiar with the world of Black Panther entirely because I don't know many of his villains. The only one I know, obviously, is the two, the one played by Andy Serkis, Claw, and uh, Killmonger. But that's just from watching this movie. Yeah. Um... Yeah, so for me, it's going to be an interesting experience to see what Ryan Krugler do with it, um, because you know when she lost, when she lost Chad with Bozeman, that just threw the whole story into a loop. But I knew that you know, well, I believe in the comics or one of the later versions of the comics is that Shuri actually becomes Black Panther, um, and uh, there was a lot from what I heard and what I read online is that there was a lot of issues. Dealing, dealing with she was one she got hurt while she was on production um there was an ankle injury you know during a stunt and then also the there was a small you know well I wouldn't say small but there was issues with you know uh vaccines and stuff like that that you know caused some ruffles or some issues um but that's just all hearsay I, don't, I can't really speak to too much on that um how much that played a part into it so I know for uh, Ryan Coogler, there had to be a lot of work that needed to be done to even get this film to where it's at today. Um, so that's why, you know, I'm so curious about like what the plot is going to be and what the story is, um, because there's so many elements that was kind of thrown out the window. Yeah, now that we and since we've been discussing how the Marvel Universe is just about expansion, you don't know if this film is going to take that similar route, because I feel like it's gotten harder post Endgame yeah oh for sure for sure because there's so many what i liked about black panther was that it felt you know in its own world right it felt it it didn't feel like it was trying to expand into different universes or include like so many different elements to tell the story it felt very you know stubborn that all right the story's in wakanda dealing with wakandan themes wakanda history but now I could get the sense that it's like, all right, it's now opening and expanding. Um, 
which I kind of we kind of saw it with it uh, with um, Infinity War, you know, just the battle taking place in Wakanda. Yeah, right. right. So it's like now that opened kind of the floodgates of different people coming in, different people going out. You know, now more people know about Wakanda um, and can now participate in it. So, you know, as it goes further now, it's just like the, the gates are just going to be expanded a little bit more, which I feel like as a sense, it might just water down even just the world of Wakanda, because it's like now this character coming in there, now this character participating in it. And again, I don't know. We have to see what the future holds, but I think that creates, in opening its gates, it creates those small little issues that we have an is- a problem with. It's very interesting you bring that up because when it's the focus on Wakanda, the idea of introducing new elements of it could cause some kind of disruption that enhances the narrative because the first film, yeah, it was very focused on Wakanda, but Wakanda was like this very isolated society. And what do you do when you introduce new elements it was never familiar with that disrupt its pattern, its natural pattern? Mm. That can create a whole realm of storytelling and maybe... It's a crazy idea, maybe even a TV series on that, because I know that they were originally going to do a TV series for the Batman in Gotham, more mm. centered on a police officer rather than any comic book characters. Mm. No, and I think that's a fair point. That's a fair point as far as, because I, I think, and that's what Black Panther, I think, is going to be alluding to, is more so, um, I think, dealing with uh, the ideas of invasion um because like i saw the trailer and it just seems like okay there's more so these outside communities coming into that space which creates greater conflict um and you know with greater conflict greater problems great themes so I think, yeah exactly um so is that where for me it was just more so about you know once you expand the universe it's like the identity you don't want the sense the identity to be lost like you still want the conflict to be there but you don't want the identity of you know the themes that this uh film presented to be watered down but with that you have to open up this gates to like what you said to explore more stories and storylines because if you keep black pan if you keep wakanda within itself well there's only so much stories you could tell within that space or containment yeah before some executive interferes and does decide to expand beyond it. Mm-hmm. Not for sure. For sure. So we'll see. We'll see. I'm I'm curious. And what 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 they're gonna is gonna be playing in November? When I know. I haven't followed the trajectory of any Marvel films in a long time. I mean, when you told me that She-Hulk hasn't been received very well, I was kind of surprised because usually those shows have a booming reception. The first couple of episodes from what I was told were were really good, but then um they start to kind of tell off towards you know, you know, episode three, four, and five. Um and I, I still want to have hope for Marvel films. Um I I grew up a big fan. Um I just think, you know, it's tough. It's tough. Um, you know, once you once you expand the again, is what I mentioned about kind of going expanding the universe so large and so wide. Now you have so many different projects, and now it's like you don't really have the the focus to really nail down one project at a time. 
and make it special because now you have a TV series and television, you know, that, that expands for months. And now you have a film, you have multiple films. And, you know, even they have a short, um, they have a, uh, on, on group, they have like a small mini series of short films on, on group, you no, know. And what's his trait? He's just become adorable. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's interesting that, you know, in a way of expanding the universe, you could then lose kind of like your source of power because it's like now it's like, you know, that requires time, energy, focus, overhead. And maybe you're not as disciplined as you were when you just maybe had to focus on these next two films coming out. And you could lock into that rather than it's like you got so you're spread thin, you know. So um, we'll see. You know, I still want to remain optimistic, but I only got to judge, you know, that according to what's presented in front of me. No, I, let's hope so. Are there any other projects that you're working on at the current moment that you're at liberty to discuss or is it just mm. for now? Um, so as of now, I'm in the midst of a documentary. Really? Um, yeah. So, um, after I completed us, um, a company reached out to me to just discuss kind of collaboration in the future. Um, because for me, it's, it's just as important as the topics I make my film about, but to also support that community in any ways that I can. Um, so a, a company by the name of the Natalie Project and Options for All um, connected with me. And with the Natalie Project, uh, they had the CEO or the founder of the Natalie Project had a sister who has IDD, which is Intellectual Developmental Develop uh, Disability. Um, and she was turning 40 years old. And she was, so she was just talking about her sister and talking about, you know, the things that happened in her life and her sister experienced sexual abuse. Jeez. And that's what, you know, the Natalie Project's aim to, you know, uh, to confront is sexual abuse amongst people with disabilities. And so when she mentioned that her sister was turning 40 years old, me knowing a lot of things in the community, I recognize like turning 40 years old with a disability is no easy feat. It's no easy task, and it deserves to be celebrated. And off a whim, I wasn't even trying. I said, "Hey, you should do a documentary." You know, leading up to her 40th birthday, maybe five days leading up to her 40th birthday, and celebrating her life um, despite all her challenges. And you know, I left it at that. And about a week later, she came back to me and said, "Hey, do you want to, you know, make the documentary? Do you want to explore that?" Um, and for me, it, it was a no brainer, you know, it's one thing to make a narrative project about, you know, a child with disability, but when you do a documentary, you know, there is no quote unquote script. There is no lines. There's just full immersion into that person's world and the circumstances that they're dealt with. Um, and so experimental by nature in its own way. Mm, yeah, it's. It's, I don't know, I, I just felt just really connected to just help bring that story to life. So uh, I was in Walnut Creek, Creek, where she stays in in Northern California about a week and a half ago. Um, we shot, you know, there for about five days. 
Um, and then, you know, now we're getting into post. Congratulations. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Um, so I, this project is something that I really want to just lean my attention into. Um, and just, you know, really, you know, help bring that story to life. Um, and then, you know, I'm back home in Atlanta for some time. And, you know, I'm just using this time to just honestly take in family. We always talk about, you know, film and the inspiration of film. Well, a lot of times I get my inspiration by just people that I'm around. Um, a lot of my inspiration comes when I'm not focused on film and I'm just focused on living, right? Um, Barry Jenkins, he said, I'm, par I'm paraphrasing the quote, um, so I'm going to jack it up, but just the meaning behind it. He was like, you know, how can I depict life if I don't live it? You know, and don't intellectualize it too much, basically. Yeah, it's like, it's like, yo, it's like I, I'm able to visualize this medium uh, simply because I've seen it in my life. I've seen it in real world time, right? So like the arguments I get into it with my brother or my sister, I'm able to depict that through cinema because it's like, I see it, I experienced it. I know what that felt like, you know? I know what that energy was, that confrontation was. So when I'm in cinema, it's like, all right, I know where to place my characters. I know what to direct them because I already felt it. I already seen it in my spirit. So it's just now, you know, just saying action and knowing where to place the cameras and how to place it. So I'm just in that space of focusing on the documentary and just honestly living life until my spirit calls for me to say something new or different. Ray Bradbury said something similar to what Barry Jenkins said about, I mean, I haven't seen the clip of the title of the YouTube video is that the intellect is the worst thing to creativity. <laughs> well, it's more like, don't overthink it. Just let go. Just relax. Like that kind of version of it. Exactly. Exactly. And I know you mentioned like your short bit at film school and I was in film school for, I did, I just spent so many years in film school, but, um, are you as pessimistic uh, as I am? There's, I have a lot of critique about film school. Um, Thank if, you. you know, there's a lot, that's, that's a whole other podcast of how do we, uh, we that's a whole nother podcast you would need to invite me for to discuss like ways oh, we can make, love to have you again, definitely. you know, because my experience of film school was very mixed, but there's ways I feel like it can be better suited to help filmmakers and support the work that they're doing. But that's a whole nother space. Um, but one of the things I constantly ran into when I was in film school was like sometimes people trying to intellectualize so many different things that didn't really need to be intellectualized about, right? It's just more so feeling and trusting your emotional gut and, and not overthinking certain topics like I remember when I was in film school, I wanted to shoot, uh, me and the film student, we wanted to shoot 4-3 aspect ratio. Um, and, and the reason why I wanted to shoot 4-3 was because I just felt it. I just felt that this is what I wanted to see. This is what I wanted to feel. And as a result of my emotion, my feeling towards that aspect ratio, I could then intellectualize if I wanted to. Um, the other student tried to intellectualize it from a standpoint of, hey, this represents the blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, life ain't, life isn't that. Um, Compartmentalized? Yeah, you know, 
you know, sometimes I make creative decisions, not because, hey, this red car represents a theme of anger. No, sometimes the red car just fits visually into the frame. Doesn't have, uh, I don't want to put a meaning behind a purpose behind it. It's just, it feels right. It's interpretation you know? purely. Yeah. You know, and so, and that's kind of how life is. It's like, hey, you know, we got into this argument, not because this whole thing going around, but it's like, because I wanted something, you didn't like it. And now we're disagreeing. Boom. Now we're having a debate that as simple as that, <laughs> like, you know, and I treat cinema the same way of keeping it simple and minimizing um, or exp exploring minimalism within our lives. Because it's like, at the end of the day, it is that simple, right? The, even the conflicts that we encounter comes as a result of desiring something or seeking something and maybe not going our way. And we're just reacting or responding to that thing that didn't happen the way we intended it to. And now that's a story. Boom. Yeah. <laughs> hey, I want to go get medicine for my daughter because she's sick. Oh, oh, they ran out of medicine. Now I got to go to this place. Oh, well, this thing, this medicine that I'm seeking for my daughter actually caused uh, costs 50 more dollars than I have. Where can I go get $50 from? All right, now I got to do this task to get $50. Oh, this task that I'm doing, uh, there might be some morality issues in it. Okay, it's causing me... Now I got to decide, do I want to do something illegal to save my daughter or what you are describing is a simplicity that involve evolves into a complexity. Exactly. And and that's life. And I just try to see it that way. Like even us is about a father trying to teach his son with dancing how to play baseball. He struggled. He's conflicts of should he be aggressive towards his son or see he approach his son with more love. Right. Which one does he decides to do? How does he do it? His son is not reacting the way he wants him to react. So he has to take extra measures. He got to yell, he got to scream, but he recognizes that's not helping. So he has to go through other measures. But at the end of the day, it was just him trying to teach his son how to catch a ball. <laughs> like, you know, so it's it's interesting. Like, so it goes back to what you said. It's like, yo, don't, don't complicate the matter. Yeah, and yeah, ironically, we still follow that anyway. I mean, as a screenwriter, I always fall prey to that contradiction one way or the other. <laughs> Don't we all? <laughs> Don't we all? Well, I would definitely like to have you on the podcast a second time, especially, I mean, it's maybe biased to bash film school because I think you don't need to burn money to learn that you can just Google or DuckDuckGo Joseph Campbell to learn better screenwriting. Yeah. That's true. That's true. And I could give it to you from a even a uh, film production side of it as well. Um, because it's like, you know, I majored in film production. And so and then we still have to take screenwriting courses within that. And I agree if you're trying to become a screenplay, right? Like if you're trying to do screenwriting, I, screenplay writing, like, I feel like in like do you need to be in a class setting to do that or I mean, glorified writers writers room yeah it's like is that what you need or do you just need a community of people who are passionate about writing as well who could give you the same notes and feedback that you know you're seeking um, from that you're going to get in film school as well so but without paying you know 
$60,000 or, you know, 30 to $60,000 per year to do so. No, it's so. a crock of shit. So. Well, anyway, David, I want to thank you again for being on the podcast. And just on a final note, where can people go to learn more about you, your work, and even this documentary you mentioned, if there are other sources? No, for sure. For sure. So um, you, anyone can always go on my LinkedIn page and they can scroll down my activities. Um, uh, the nonprofit organizations options for all and um, the Natalie project. And so they always taking pictures. They're always uploading, you know, kind of where our process in, is this with the documentary. So you can follow them on that as well. And to see my present or previous work, you can go on my website, davidffortune.com. Mm -hmm. um, and you can see the latest film, Us, Shoebox, Z-Man, um, Laced, um, all my recent and past directorial work. Okay, well, David, thanks again for doing this podcast episode. I'll be, share, I'll be sure to share it with you once I finish editing it and I upload it on Anchor and it'll distribute on all the other platforms because that's the good thing about Anchor. It just sends them to all the platforms out there. And I'll share, you, I'll share with you the links to them as soon as I finish. Okay, that works for me. That works for me. Well, thank you so much. And it was a blessing just to be here and just talk film with you, man. I love it. Oh, I'm looking forward to the next time we talk. And, and thanks again for going over the, for going for such a long time. No. I hope I didn't take up a lot, like a crazy amount of time out of your day, man. No, man, it was all worth it. All worth it. I'm glad. Thank you again, David. And I wish you the best in your journey as a filmmaker. Same to you, man. Take care. Take care. Bye.